Do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. We are talking today about where do I go when I die? I was sitting down with some young adults and I was talking about this and they actually told me, they said, man, stop talking about it. I don't even want to talk about that time when I'm going to die. I don't know where you are today in your life, but I want you to turn over your announcements, take some good notes. I'm going to share with you where you go when you die, according to the Bible. We're going to shed some light on this mystery today. And you don't have to be afraid of it by the end of this service. But right now, if you have a little fear in your heart, that may be a good thing, because you may not be going to the right place. And we pray that this message will touch your heart. Well, if you've been a part of this series, we started off with, uh, you know, who am I? And we began to talk about the different views that people want to give you to answer that question. Who are you? And we started talking about this evolutionary idea that, uh, you know, the world wants to impose on our children in schools and say a billion plus years ago, there was a seeding of our planet in amoebas in a, in a liquid water type jello thing. And we came from a single celled organism and then grew into like a little fish and lizard and then came to land as like a little mammal and then became a monkey or ape-like creature and then we became man. And so if you were to ask an evolutionist and say, who am I? That's what they would say. But we know that that's not true. There has to be a God. And we gave you three good proofs and arguments for God. The first one, the cosmological argument that says that everything in the natural universe must have a cause. And so we realize that if there is an earth, there must be a cause to to that earth. And if there is a universe, there must be a cause to that universe. And so if somebody just wants to say nothing exploded and made something and call it the Big Bang, we have to say that's not true, but we can still say there was a Big Bang. We just know who banged it. Somebody say the argument from cause. The Amen. The cosmological argument. The second thing that we learned was the teleological argument. That is the argument from design. If you were to see a watch on a beach, you wouldn't say that that watch came from the sand and water over time. If you see Mount Rushmore, the faces of our founding president, you would not say that these came from water and erosion and wind. You would say somebody designed it. When you study the human eye, when you study the brain, when you study everything in this world, it has a design. Thus, it must have a design. Some may say the proof from design. Amen. And then the third thing that we learned was the proof from morals. That why is it all across the world, wherever we travel and look back in time, we all share the same basic morals. That life is valuable. Respect your parents. Honor each other. Don't lie. Whether it's in a village or on your job, people who lie and steal are always considered outcasts. And we realize that there is a conscience inside of us, a, a voice, an inner voice that guides us in right and wrong. And evolution can't explain it because that voice does not point us toward our animal instincts, which would say, do what thou will, eat what you want, take what you want. We looked at that inner, inner voice actually tells us to deny our instincts and live a moral life. And that could only come from a moral giver who is God our Father. Some may say the proof for morals. Amen. Now, then we moved into the second message of now, okay, if God created us and that's why I'm, uh, I am who I am, then why am I here? What am I here to do? And then we looked at the different explanations of what you're here to do. And most people would say if they weren't a Christian or putting God first, they would say, I'm here to live for my family and I'm here to put family first. Everybody say family first. 
And that sounds so noble, right? I'm putting my family first. But then I had you all stand up, and I had you begin to sit down according to the knowledge of the generations you could go back. And by the time we got to your great-great-grandparents, which would be 16 names of knowing each one of them, nobody could really name those people anymore, let alone to the fourth and fifth generation. So what does that mean? That if I only live for my family, when my life is done a hundred years from now, they're going to forget even who I was. So there must be a purpose in life bigger than just having a family, than reproducing the human species. Everybody say, I have a purpose. And then we learned, what did Jesus say the purpose was? He said to love God and love people. But before we take Jesus' word, we have to understand why would we even listen to Jesus? What makes Christianity so special? And then the first thing that we learned is that Christianity is so special is because it's based in history. Everybody say it's historically accurate. Now that you are understanding this, you might be excited about the news. We have teams of Chinese Christians who are scientists going to Mount Iraq, even believing they're discovering the Ark of the Covenant right now. Wouldn't that, I mean, the Ark uh, that Noah was on. Wouldn't that be awesome if that was really the Ark in a sign to this last generation about God's judgment? So we talked about people like Noah and Jericho's walls and people like Joseph and the Hittite people are all historically grounded in the Bible. And so the Bible is not like the Bhagavad Gita. It's not like the the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. It is a story based in history. So that makes Christianity dynamic. So you should go to it for your purpose. The second thing that we learned was fulfilled prophecy. Everybody say prophecy. That means if God is actually saying something and we're writing it down, it should be true. And we talked about Jesus predicted the end of the Jerusalem nation in 70 A.D. that the temple walls would come down. That was 40 years before he even was dead and crucified. So it happened. Jerusalem lost itself as a nation. Then he said in the end times, Jerusalem would become a nation again. And that happened in 1948. You want to talk about predicting something specific in the future, try doing that 15 years ahead of yourself right now. Jesus did that. In the prophecies of the Bible concerning Jesus himself, if you were to say, oh, anybody could be a Jesus, it would be like filling Texas with quarters up to your waist and putting one just red and giving you one chance to pick out that red quarter. Some may say, fulfill prophecy. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Jesus gave prophecy. That's an evidence of Christianity. The third thing that we realize is that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the most verifiable miracle in history. Because some people say, well, anybody could claim the race from the dead. How do we really know? But when we study such historians and such people who spend their whole life evaluating the evidence, Lee Strobel, everybody say Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an atheist as a lawyer working for the Chicago Tribune just about 20 years ago. He said, I don't believe in God. Jesus is a myth. His wife went to church and got converted. This blew up his little world. So then he goes to church, meets with the pastor thinking this guy's a dunce. He says, you know what? I'm going to disprove Christianity this week. I'm going to use the tools I have as a lawyer with evidence, and I'm going to disprove Jesus and his resurrection. I'll be back next week. It took Lee struggled two years to investigate the evidence, and by the time he investigated it all, he became a Christian, wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict in the Faith in Jesus Christ. Are you listening to me? 
You see Lee Strobel today, LeeStrobel.com. Check out his website. So what makes the resurrection a verifiable miracle? 500 people claim that they saw him. Four gospels were written at different times periods, like quadraphonic surround system, not contradicting each other, but giving different aspects of it. Even secular historians said that he died and that people claimed to have seen him. And then the early church was established, not just on his teachings like on Buddha or some other great teacher, but established the Christian faith based on we saw him and touched him and handled him. Look at your neighbor and say, that's the introduction. Now you're called up. Who are you? You are a creation of God because there's no other thing that makes sense. Why are you here? You're here for Jesus' purpose because Jesus is the only way to go. Look at your neighbor and say, get ready. Now let's talk about today. Where do I go when I die? Where do I go when I die? Now, I want to give you the four options besides Christianity that you can look at today for yourself to see what others today are saying about where you're going to go when you die. Well, the first one is the naturalist perspective, and they would make a statement like this if you ask them where are you going to go when you die. They would say, when you're dead, you're dead. There is no existence after death. How many have heard people say that before? These are people who believe in the naturalist philosophy. That means if you can't see it, touch it, taste it, see it, or I mean hear it or feel it with your five senses, empirical evidence through scientific method, it doesn't exist. Now I want you to listen to this right here. John Achilles. Everybody say John Achilles. Lived and died by the time of 1977, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize in neurological medicine in 1963. I want you to listen to what this man said. He says, I maintain that the human mystery is incredibly demeaned by scientific reductionism. He said, those who just say everything that is, is only what can be proved scientifically. This is a man who won the Nobel Peace Prize in neurology, studying of the brain. He said, those who just say it's only scientific when we talk about our existence, he says, they demean the very human life we have. With its claims and promissory materialism to account eventually for all of the spiritual world in terms of patterns of neurological activity. This belief must be classified as superstition. Everybody say superstition. This Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist said that those who deny that there is a spiritual world or a self beyond your brain are living in themselves superstition. Like the person said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So here's a person who has spent his whole life studying the brain. The quote that I'm giving you is from his book, The Evolution of the Brain and the Creation of Self. This is what he says. He says, we have to recognize that we are spiritual beings with souls existing in a spiritual world, as well as material beings with bodies and brains existing in a material world. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, yes, we have a brain. Yes, we have a material body. But that's not all we are. When he studied the mind and how it worked, the mind wasn't the creative force behind everything that makes a personality. He said that the mind is actually like the car and the soul is like the driver, the self, who uses the mind to go and do what the self wants. Are you listening to me? So the naturalistic perspective is not right even scientifically by the people who claim that it must be scientific. So they say God is pretty awesome. Now, the second explanation is that people who do believe in God, but it's still a little vague. This is pantheism. Everybody say pantheism. 
This is very similar to uh, what you'll hear today in the New Age uh, arena with people in crystals and these things. They say, you become one with God's energy and essence. So the idea that everything in this world is God. So basically they look at what you can't see as matter, black matter, is God. So if you reduce down this uh, stool to its, uh, you know, the best element we can see it, and now you say, what makes the atoms hold together? Pantheists say, well, that's God. So God is this chair. God is you. God is everything. So God is energy, and when you die, you just go back to that energy. Well, does that make sense? No, I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense. Because you have a mind. We just deduced that from the first thing. So if I have a mind when I die, I become mindless. How did I ever get that mind to begin with? Because if I'm just energy right now, then all I would do is live according to energy and instinct. Because a dog doesn't wake up and say, where do I go when I die? It doesn't even think about that. Because it's living according to its instinct. It doesn't have a self. So to say pantheism is true is to deny that I have a self. And that God has a self. It's a selfless God, but that contradicts itself because I do have a self. Look at your neighbor and say, you do have a self. So I don't just become a part of the force. No, I continue on with a rational self. Are you here today? Are you thinking today? You don't lose that when you die. Why did you get it to begin with? You didn't get it by accident. You have it on purpose. And so it exists after you die. So a pantheistic God couldn't exist. Number three, Hinduism and Buddhism, the Eastern philosophy, would say reincarnation. You are born into a new life. Look at your neighbor and say, watch your karma, dude. See, karma is what goes around, comes around. This is the idea that if you live a bad life here, you're going to come back as an ant. You're going to come back as a dog. How many are happy for Jesus today? Amen. Well, there's two reasons why reincarnationism is wrong. Is First of all, Jesus contradicts it, and we've already established we should listen to Jesus. But the second thing, it as well doesn't make any sense, because what it's always saying is that you progress and you progress and you progress, and then eventually you become in nirvana, a state of bliss. Well, let me tell you, how does a dog progress? See, if you're punished, they say you become an animal. Well, how do you progress as an animal? The animal doesn't have itself anymore. So look at how these explanations are actually taking away your identity as a creature of God. They seem spiritual, and everybody says all religions are the same. No, the Christian belief is the only one that still says you have a self, and you're responsible for yourself. So there's no way of punishing you and putting you in a dog because dogs don't have a self. They don't talk. They don't have self-realization. They don't perform mathematics. And all of that is a part of our rational mind. So basically they will say, you'll go backwards as a dog until you learn the lesson as a human and then come back as a human and then do better and keep progressing. But how do I become a better human being, a dog without a mind? See, reincarnation doesn't make sense. Jesus didn't teach it. Look at your neighbor and say, that's deep, man. And then the fourth one is what even some Christian cults like Jehovah Witnesses, Christian Science, and different people may teach, and that is soul sleep. So this is the closest to the truth as we started just from straight-up atheism, agnosticism, naturalism. We then go into pantheism, everything is God and I become God. Then to Hinduism being reincarnated. Soul sleep basically says you have a soul that is created by God, but when you die, your soul will sleep until judgment. And so then the story would continue, you would face judgment And very similar in a Christian perspective. The problem with this is, is it denies the intermediate state. Everybody say the intermediate state. 
And the intermediate state is very important in the teachings of Jesus. And that's where I'm going to start today, disproving soul sleep and showing you that Jesus said, when you die, you face heaven or hell. Somebody say, preach it, preacher. Let's see if there's such thing as soul sleep. Is there an intermediate state or not? You'll see it disproved right here, I believe. Luke 16, 19 through 24, answering the question, where do we go when we die? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, Jesus talking, and in fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and look what happens. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Is there such thing as soul sleep according to Jesus? Does the soul stay asleep until judgment day? No, it doesn't. What happened to the beggar once he died? He was what? Carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man was also buried, uh, died and was buried. Now, what happened to him? In hell. Hello, somebody. In hell. So where did the rich man go? Abraham's side. Where, uh, excuse me, where did Lazarus go? Abraham's side. Where did the rich man go? Hell, no such thing as soul sleep, my friends, heaven or hell. I'll explain Abraham's side in just a moment. In hell, when he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, that in your lifetime you receive good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony so we're out of the soul sleep guess there is no guessing of soul sleep we know you're either going to be comforted after you die or be in agony can you say amen and beside all this between us and you has been a great chasm fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us he answered then i beg you father send lazarus to my father's house for i have five brothers let him warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment abraham abraham replied they have moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them they will He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Somebody said, that's true. Amen. Now I want you to think about what happened here. Jesus said there was a rich man. He lived, he died, he went to hell. There was a poor man, a beggar. He lived, he died, he went to Abraham's bosom. This is a little side note moving on from our issue. But I want to just take a little note and tell you what happened in the Old Testament before Jesus died, buried, and rose again. There was a place called hell, and it's still there today, but it was divided by this great chasm in a place called Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is the paradise that Jesus says to the man on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. Why did they have to go to Abraham's bosom or paradise and couldn't go to heaven where the throne of God was? Because men's spirits had not been born again. They were in this place, Ephesians says, until Jesus had paid the price of the cross. Then it says in Ephesians that he led captivity captive and his train filled Hades or the grave and he presented them to the Father. So before the time of Jesus, when you died, if you were bad, you went to hell. That didn't change. 
garbage. But if you were good, you were in this place called paradise, waiting for the resurrection of Jesus, the promised Lamb of God. And then when Jesus Christ died, remember he went to the grave? He went to hell, Hades, the grave. What was he doing down there? He wasn't having a disco. He wasn't hanging out with Hercules. He was down there taking people out of Abraham's bosom and bringing them to heaven. And then he was saying to those who rejected Moses, who rejected Noah and all of the different covenants that God had made before the time of Jesus, he said, what you have rejected in part was really me. This is your punishment. Then he said to all of the patriarchs, Abraham, when you did it by faith, you were believing in me. Moses, when you saw the cleft of the rock and the glory, that was really me. Now come on up to the east side. Come on. We got to get a piece of the pot. He took him on up to heaven. Somebody say amen. Now, I don't have time to spend on that today, but what I want to show you is that there's no such thing as soul sleep. So our Jehovah Witnesses are not only wrong on Jesus being God, but they're wrong on what happens, like what this man experienced after death. You will go to an immediate state. There is no soul sleep. Can you say amen? Now, here is what the Bible teaches you. Let's go to Luke 16:22. When you die, your spirit and soul live on. That is as clear as can be when you look at the teachings of the Bible. Looking at Luke chapter 16, verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and in hell. So I want you to get this in your mind today. Yourself, which is a spiritual self, will live on after you die. Don't let anybody tell you any different. We will help you go through the process of the Bible, realizing it again. But I'm asking you to take Jesus' simple words because you may not have time to work this out before you die. Nobody is promised tomorrow. Listen to me, my friends. As a preacher speaking to you today, this may be the last thing you ever hear. You do have a spirit and soul that lives on. You say, Pastor, that's kind of morbid. How do you know that? Because no one knows when they're going to die. Just look at the newspaper, how random people lose their lives. It's so unpredictable. I was looking at this a race that they have out in the desert, the Mojave race, and, and they were out there racing, and this car went off the track and instantly killed 13 people, beheading some children that were just out at a race. You don't even know. Kids at school, school shootings, job shootings, that Discovery uh, Channel uh, had quarters there when that guy went in Seattle and then took his own life. You know, you never know where you can be even be safe. You might say, I'm on a military base, Pastor. What about the shooting that we had at Fort Hood on the military base? You're not promised tomorrow, my friends. And you have to understand that when your body dies, your soul and spirit will continue. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.8. Look at it in the New Living Translation. This is Paul speaking. He said, yes, we are fully confident and would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we'll be at home with the Lord. So I want to encourage you today not to be afraid of hell. Look at your neighbor and say, he's going to scare the hell out of you. See, I don't want you to be scared of hell anymore. I want the hell to be scared out of you today. I want you to get all the hell out of you. Don't get hell in your mind today. Get heaven in your mind. Do what it takes to go to heaven. Because Paul, he looked at losing the earthly body as a way to go home and be with the Lord. Somebody say a homecoming. A lot of students are going to be doing that here in high school, and we need to know that we will have a homecoming one day when we go to be with Jesus. The second thing is, you will face judgment immediately. Everybody say, immediately. Thank you. Turn with me to Hebrews 9, verse 27. The moment your body dies, your spirit and soul will immediately face judgment. 
Now, we're not clear about how thorough this judgment is because the thorough judgment, the great white throne judgment, I will show you in just a moment, happens at the end of the age. But we do know that there is a judgment that will take place immediately when you die that either brings you into the God's presence because now you can go to the throne of God because your spirit has been born again by the blood of Lamb. He's at the right hand of Jesus, the mercy seat in the Old Covenant. Guys, let me just explain this to you. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. Put the tabernacle up as I'm going here on the fly, my brother. Come on. Look at your neighbor and say, he's a fly guy. Because he's going to fly with me right now. In the Old Testament, during the time of Moses, there was an Ark of the Covenant. And in this, uh, excuse me, there was a tabernacle. And the furthest part of this tabernacle was called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is what Moses was told to build so that when people broke the Ten Commandments, they would go there and put blood there. Now, everybody look at this. This is what it was like when Moses was in the wilderness with the people. He went on to Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments and then 600 laws and ordinances found in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is what it was about. He was told to build a tabernacle. These curtains that you see are to separate the holy from the unholy place. So once you would go into this tabernacle, going through that, uh, that little door right there, you would enter into the inner court. Somebody say inner court. Why am I sharing this with you? This points all to Jesus, the blood, and judgment. Here it is. That inner court, the first thing that you would see is a place of sacrifice. That's where they sacrifice the animals. Because every sin they were committing, there was supposed to be a judgment placed on an animal in the shedding of blood to teach people and ingrain it in their minds. There is a punishment for your sin. Some may say sacrifice. Now, who is that pointing to in the future? Jesus, okay. So Jesus would be there being represented by the blood of these lambs and bulls. The next thing that you would see is these guys hanging around what was called a brazen laver. It was a big bowl made of brass, and this is where the priests would wash their hands and clean themselves because doing sacrifices like they were, they were literally like butchers. They would get dirty during the day with all of this blood. Then they would go to this place and be washed. That is referring to the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that once the blood has has been shed, you are cleansed and made clean by the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? Now then what would happen is you would go into this second door, which is now entering the holy of holy place. Are you with me? And in this first place, it's divided in two. This place right here, this little tent, is divided into two places. So once you would walk in here, there's a room here and then the last room. This room right here had three items. It had the table of showbread, which was a table with 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priests would partake of it religiously, kind of as we do our communion. And that would stand for the word of God Because the Bible says man does not live by bread alone But every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God And that's why Jesus says If any man is hungry let him come unto me And and drink and eat And he shall never thirst or hunger again Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness For they shall be filled Because he's the living abiding word of God Okay next there is the menorah The candlesticks The seven candlesticks that you'll see during Hanukkah Those candlesticks represent the seven manifestations Of God's spirit that God is the spirit of wisdom, power, and all of these wonderful things representing that when a believer comes to Jesus full of the word, the spirit gives him the ability to do all things. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Are you all getting this? And then the last thing that is there is a place of incense. They would light this incense. The Bible says it would be a sweet savor unto God. This incense represents the prayer of the saints. This is where we come and offer our prayer to God. Somebody say, I love God. 
Then you would enter into the veil, the last curtain. So there was three curtains all together. The curtain into the actual outer court with the brazen altar, then the brazen laver. The second curtain into the holy place with the table of showbread, with the menorah and the altar of incense. Then you would push through the veil and you would be in the most holy of holy place. And what would be there? The Ark of the Covenant. Somebody say the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm not talking about Indiana Jones. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant would be this treasure chest box which had two golden angels on it and the priest once a year on the Day of Atonement known in the Jewish holiday as Yom Kippur would come there with a branch known as a hyssop branch like we have maple trees. It was a hyssop branch from the sacrifice he made at the altar. He would walk through, do all of his religious duties and then come to this altar and put the blood on it. That is the mercy seat. That was representing to the people of Israel that whenever people sin there's judgment something dies but then the blood covers the sin and God brings forgiveness and then the glory cloud would come during the day and the fire by night somebody say I get it now let's go back to the message thank you for that momentary interruption did you learn something now why is it important that you understand this in today's lesson because this is not a dink that just came along in the time of Jesus Jesus was teaching us that you immediately face judgment when you die you face judgment if you don't have the blood of Jesus on you you're immediately getting cast out into hell if you have the blood of Jesus on you you are now allowed into the presence of God you are now allowed into the holy of holy place because all those things on earth are symbolic of what's in heaven look with me into Hebrews 9:27 if you're there say I'm there amen it says as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment so my friends you need to be ready to die you have to be ready I'm not just talking about health insurance who will take care of your children a will I'm telling you right now in my heart to you from the word of God you need to be ready to die you have to be ready to die you need to have an assurance that when you die you're going to be with God because you will be judged all of this that people say don't judge me don't judge me he will judge you and you can't do anything about it and other people that have said well God will judge me well God will on that day it will be so terrifying my friends the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God if you don't have the blood of Jesus to make you presentable to the Father your arguments all your sweat uh, you know, swift, uh, swift thinking, you're going to be quick on your feet. All of that, the Bible says, will not mean anything, and you'll be in terror, and you'll be cast out of his presence. Look at your neighbor and say, be ready to die. Amen. Number three, you will either go to heaven or to hell. Either heaven or hell. There is not purgatory. There is not come back as an angel wearing your favorite baseball cap and you go into little boys and girls rooms and scare them. No, and all these weird aberrations that we see, you will not become a ghost and you will not go to purgatory. There is no other place to go but heaven and hell now. Abraham's side has been done away with. We now either go into the presence of God around the throne waiting for his second coming to come upon this earth or we go into this place called hell, a place of torment looking again at that passage of scripture the time came the angels carried him to Abraham's side that would be heaven now and the other one died and he was in hell now I want you to look at Luke 23 Jesus emphasized this again remember Luke 16 is the story but Jesus emphasizes it again later on in his teaching Jesus said remember when you come uh, excuse me the man said to him while he was dying this is the thief on the cross he said Jesus remember me when you come 
into your kingdom? Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Everybody say, today. The moment you die, you're with God wherever he is. Now, I cannot even begin to describe these two places to you in a way that will do justice. First of all, God is not here to try to scare you like a horror movie. He's not here to say in hell people are chopping your limbs off and it's all this crazy blood everywhere. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible describes hell in such a way that you would know you do not want to go there. And I can only use what God has given to me an artist's rendering to help you understand what hell will be like. Matthew 13, 42 says, They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I want you to understand what the Spirit is saying. There are three descriptions of hell that Jesus gives. Number one, there will be fire. That means yourself, your soul, will be able to have a form that can be tortured by fire. It is not a physical fire because you don't have a physical body. But in hell, you will have a form, and there will be a form of fire that can torment your soul in hell. Also in there, the next thing the Bible says is there will be weeping. In this place of hell, there is weeping. Why is there weeping? Because the memory of all the times you rejected God and the things you could have done for God are there with you always. And so yourself is present. People have asked me, what do you think time will be like there? I believe time will go like it goes now. One second, two seconds. I believe it will not just be some metaphysical state. You will know you are there. You will be aware that you are there. And you will be feeling the torment while you are there. And then the memories of why you are there. The times in church when preachers like me preached until they were red-faced, spitting and sweating all over the place, and you rejected it. The times that you read it in your Bible and you said, I'll put it off to another time. These things will make you weep. That will be all you have to comfort you. There will be nobody there. There will be nothing uh, to, to make you feel like there's a second chance. There is no more chances. That's what Jesus described it as. So there's weeping. And then the last thing is this gnashing of teeth, this gritting of your teeth. I can't even imagine the pain that would grit your teeth. There was a man once that saw an accident of an oil tanker, a a guy driving a 16-wheeler truck of, of gasoline. He saw it wreck and it go over, and a man got caught underneath it, and the gas caught on fire. And the man said, watching a person be burned alive, the guy gritted his teeth and until his teeth came out because of the pain that is what the bible is describing there that the pain will be so immense that it will not let up for a moment the bible describes hell as a place of eternal fire and torment it describes it as a place of sorrow where your memory does not go away and a place that the pain the gnashing of your teeth will be so great that you'll cry out for mercy as the rich man did. And you'll say, just dip your finger in water and place it on my tongue. But there'll be no one there to relieve you. Now look with me as we talk about the good part. Look at your neighbor and say, here's the good part. Now go to Revelation chapter 4. Now, you know, I remember a, uh, a time I was preaching about hell, and a young child went to his father and said, I am so scared of hell, Dad. I'm so scared of hell. I don't know what to do. And the father gave him some great advice. I'm going to give you that advice today. 
The father said to his son, he said, son, look at Pluto. Pluto's so far away. It has no oxygen. It's so cold you couldn't survive there. He would say, son, are you afraid of living on Pluto? The son said, no. He said, then you don't need to be afraid of hell because you're not going there. That's not your home and you'll never go there. So you and I don't need to be afraid of it. We need to be mindful of it. We need to know that if we don't fear the Lord and have a respect for him, we can go there. But as Christians, we're not to be afraid of God. The Bible says that that type of fear doesn't come from love. But the love that God gives us draws us near to his side. And then out of a a, a holy passion for people that are going to hell, we should go and get them saved and preach the gospel and not just tell them, you're going to hell! Hell! We should go to them and tell them about heaven and Jesus and how much he loves them. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. Amen. Let's look at the description of heaven. Of course, pictures and words that I could say can't compare to what the Bible gives. Here's what John sees in heaven in Revelation 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard speaking was of a trumpet. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Somebody say he was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. On the one who was there had an appearance of Jasper and Kremlion, which I have no idea what that is, but I'm sure it's beautiful. Amen? A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder. Some of you are like, dude, I'm, a, I'm afraid of God now. Well, you, dude, God is pretty awesome, amen? Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Remember the, remember the menorah, the seven candlesticks in the tabernacle I was telling you about? There these seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Hallelujah. That sea of glass, I believe, is the Holy Ghost flowing down from the throne. Jesus, I want to take another drink. Amen. In the center around this throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, and the third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around them, even under his wings. Can you imagine seeing these seraphim, these type of angels? And that's kind of what this picture is trying to draw here. The one sitting on the throne, the seven manifestations of God, spirit, the elders around them, these seraphim mighty creatures, and day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne. And what do they say? Let's say it together. One, two, three. You are worthy. Worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Can you shout hallelujah? 
The Bible says that in this place right now where we go in heaven, it's all about God and it's all about His throne. So there you are around His throne. The angels are worshiping Him. You're worshiping Him. You're crying out worthy. The Bible then goes on to describe that there's a place around His throne, special seating for the martyrs who have been martyred for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they're crying out to the Father and the Son. How much longer do we have to wait until you avenge our blood, until you come and judge the world? So this is where we will be if we were to die right now in heaven, around the presence of God, His throne, waiting for Him to come down and end it all and restart this world over again. Look at your neighbor and say, restart. Amen. So that's what heaven is like. And this is where I want to go now to Revelations 20:11, because you won't remain in heaven forever. Somebody say, I'm staying there. You see, that is not the place that we remain forever. We have got it in our eyes that we become naked, fat little babies with angels' wings and harps. And we put them up in our bathrooms. Okay, something's weird about that, by the way. Never felt comfortable about that. That's okay, I'm just teasing. But you don't stay in heaven. Heaven is the place where God's throne is now, and we are there with Him until He comes down here. So I've got to fill you in on a whole bunch before the great white throne. Because right now the people are in heaven. And we're here on earth. One day the Bible says a trumpet's going to sound. There's going to be a rapture. Somebody say a rapture. And we will be caught up with the Lord. Then there will be seven years of tribulation. An antichrist figure will take over the governments of the world. He will then give a mark that, like a credit card or like a social security card that you cannot buy or sell unless you give allegiance to his government similar to what went on in Soviet Union and Germany where you'll have to acknowledge him and the government as your God. Christians will not... Uh, by the way, those who have went to heaven have left their Bibles and all these things here. It's called left behind, right? If you ever heard about that book series and so some people are going to freak out you know you just watch your mom go up to heaven that young person's going to put away the weed and start living for jesus now right so anyways now that people are gone this antichrist comes gets the mark of the beast what you've heard about and this is real by the way i totally believe this and what will happen is people will start to become christians because they now know they've missed the bus but the bible says they'll start being beheaded and the majority of the world will follow the antichrist he will then make a peace treaty with israel for those seven years and somehow allow them to rebuild their temple and for the muslims to have what they want there so the resolution to this problem in the Middle East will seem to have been solved by the Antichrist. And he'll make this treaty with the Jews. But remember, God's people, the Jews, go all the way back to Abraham's time. And so he will always protect them. And what happens is this Antichrist figure goes into the Jewish temple and he sacrifices to himself and tells the Jews, I am your God. At that point, the Jews run and head for the hills and deny the Antichrist. And now he wants to wipe out the entire Jewish nation. Because of this war, he declares against the Jewish nation, God then for the next three and a half years sends plagues upon the earth. This is Revelation. Are you all listening to me? Just read your Bible. Bowls of wrath upon this earth. Star falls from the sky. Wormwood destroys most of the living water and vegetation. This is your Bible. Armageddon is coming and God is about ready to spare his people. Then the armies of the east coming from China and all throughout Russia and the Middle Eastern countries surround Israel and are going to destroy it. That's when that trumpet sounds, Jesus Christ 
a galloping on a white horse, comes down with a sword. He then destroys the nations. Listen to this before we get excited. You want to talk about a bloodbath. Listen to this. The Bible says on that day of Armageddon, Christ coming back on a white horse, he kills a billion people, and the blood is as high as a horse's head from here to Rockford, a hundred miles. So this is not a pretty day, okay? So he comes and he destroys these nations. He then sets up his kingdom and bow. There comes the great white throne judgment. He says, now everybody come up here and take your judgment. So people out of hell come up to judgment now. The devil comes up to judgment now. All the people in heaven now are going to be rewarded for what they've done. Come on, somebody say amen. Oh, praise God. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I wish I had all day to preach. Amen. I will then. Thank you very much. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person, somebody say each person. Each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Do you know that hell is like the county jail? If you commit a crime, you go to the county jail. Then you go to court. Then you go to the penitentiary. Somebody say, he knows about that. (laughs) Okay, praise the Lord. Been saved 15 years. Thank you, Jesus. You see, hell is the place where souls who who have departed from God are now as a county jail. Then they come to the great right throne judgment. And then is the lake of fire. So just imagine this, my friends. The lake of fire was created for the devil and his fallen angels. So these creatures of mass destruction, angelic proportions, are supposed to go to the lake of fire, and now the creation of God is going there. What a shame, and what a torment that can be. That is indescribable. Jesus doesn't spend much time describing the lake of fire, but if it's where hell goes, and hell is already fire, and hell is already torment, and hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth, imagine what the lake of fire is. The lake of fire is the second death. So you died once, went to hell, now, you, now you're judged, you go forever in the lake of fire. If you don't know God, look at your neighbor and say, don't let it happen. Amen. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now look at the new earth. Everybody say the new earth. So remember, Armageddon has come. God has destroyed the nations. He has now set up his throne. He has judged those who don't know him and rejected him. All these angels, demons. Remember how many angels there were that came with Satan. He took a third of innumerable amount of demons. So these demons, these fallen angels, they're all gone. They're all in the lake of fire. Now look at Revelation 20:14. Then death and hells were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. It's over. Say it's over, somebody. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And what I believe the Bible is saying when it's talking about a heaven is the atmosphere around us, the stars, the galaxy, everything that became corrupted because of sin is now made right. Everything is back to what it was supposed to be. Paradise lost, now paradise gained. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. See, here it is. All of us coming with Jesus out of heaven. We are the body of Christ. We are the new Jerusalem. We are that city of praise. Sounds like a good name for a church. Metro praise. That's us. The city of praise. Hallelujah. Say it in Telugu for Indian people. Sutni Patnam. That's who we are. That city of praise coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for a husband. I'm getting married again this time to a man. Amen. Praise God. I love me some Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with him. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why will tears have to be wiped away from your eyes? Because if Aunt Memo wasn't saved, you're never seeing her again. He has to wipe away the tear and the remembrance. Psalms 1 says you will not be remembered if you lived wickedly. Listen to me. Heaven on earth couldn't be heaven on earth if I think about my sister died drinking and driving, rejecting God. The Bible says the wicked will be remembered no more. The mother will even forget her womb. This is serious. So it's not just like, hallelujah, all my tears are being wiped away. No, it's a sign of it's over. It's done. You don't remember them anymore. Hitler's name will never come from your mouth. The wickedness of this world will be forever gotten. You have cried. You have wept. You've seen hell. You've seen the lake of fire. You saw them go. Tears wiped away. It's party time. And somebody say there ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party because a Holy Ghost party don't. That's right. Amen. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Will you stand up to your feet, give God the best hallelujah clap offering you can, because there's a promise for people who serve God. Thank you, Lord. Woo! Band, would you come, please? Today, the question comes back to you. Where will you go when you die? My job as a pastor is to make the Bible come alive to you. That's my job. My job is to take the words of Jesus, condense it into a sermon, so that you can go away from here filled with the truth of God. Do you see what the Bible teaches? You are not just going to go into a grave and that's it. That is not how it ends. You will not become one with the energy of God. You will still have a self. You do not get another chance. You will not come back again. And my friend, you will not sleep. You will be fully conscious and aware the moment you lose this earthly body. And I wish I had time to tell you of the credible stories. This is not silly willy stuff on Oprah Winfrey. The credible stories of people who have had those experiences when they die. And you've heard of them many times. And they talk about this light. That could be the time they face that judgment of heaven or hell. Boom, there it is. There was actually a story of a man who was a pastor. A pastor. This is kind of credible when you think about it. A pastor, and he died in a car accident. Guess where he went? He went to hell. And in hell, Jesus comes to him and says, You are here because you have bitterness in your heart. He's dead. They got the death certificate and everything. Email me. I'll send you his story. Credible story. I'm not going to give you, uh, you know, wives' tales from this church. Okay? I'm not playing from you the audio file from hell that they believe they found digging for oil in Siberia. Okay? I'm not doing that. I'm t- credible. 
He's dead. Death certificate. But he's in hell. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you another chance to go and warn my people that I will judge them, as I said. And he came back, and he... He didn't write like my journey to heaven, you know, running through the tulips, I'm your pastor, let me sell you a bunch of books and make money. He said, I was a pastor, I went to hell. And Jesus wants to remind you, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That's one of the things Jesus said. Do you remember that? Jesus said, if you don't forgive, it's right after the Lord's Prayer. If you don't forgive men their sins, you won't be forgiven. He said, guys, we better get ready. Credible, credible people have already experienced some of these things. But I'm not here to convince you that way. I could, I said, but I'm not here to. You can find those things in credible places. But Jesus said, if you remember anything from today, this is what Jesus said. When you die, you will face judgment and either suffer eternally in a place called hell, then the lake of fire, or you will be in heaven and then with him forever upon the new earth. Where will you go when you die? Remember we read about the judgment, the books were open. There's only one book that you need to have your name in, and that's called the book of life. Jesus said, he said, John chapter 3, verse 3, no man can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That is how we get our names written in the Lamb's book of life. I am thankful today that my name is written there. It's not because of anything I've done or because of what I deserve. It's because of what he did. And I accepted him because you go from John 3, 3, you must be born again, to John 3.16. And if you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When people get upset with God and they say, how could He ever send someone to hell? They say, you know, let's say my pet hurt my child. I wouldn't set the pet on fire and burn it. How could God be so hideous, excuse me, so so just morbid to, to burn people alive in that sense for eternity? You see, my friends, we have been brought up in a society where we don't understand judgment. You didn't grow up with the tabernacle in the center of your city, smelling the burnt flesh every day. You didn't see a Moses with Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. So in our society, when we want to take them down from the courtrooms, we we do it. Why? Because we think God thinks like us. We think that if we commit murder, we'll serve a certain time period, we'll be out again. Because God is like us. We've lost the idea of judgment. The first problem is, is that you don't know the God of the Bible. So if you're going to have a discussion about it being unfair... You need to first get to know the God of the Bible. He is a holy God. And Adam and Eve did not rape each other. Adam and Eve did not kill each other. Adam and Eve were disobedient in one command, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That is the story of the Bible. God is serious. The second thing is, is that we could never understand, as we were singing before, what the cross is and what it means. We've gotten so used to it, we've seen so many stories imitated, that we've become numb to the idea that God sent His only Son to die for us. We don't understand that how serious hell is, how tormenting, how crazy God did the most crazy thing. God did the most extravagant thing. He did the greatest thing in His power to stop you from going there. So nobody's just dumping up, oh, I'm in hell. How did I get here? No, it's a choice. It's a choice. And the third thing 
that we don't understand is eternity. Everything we do here is on time. We age. I'm getting gray hair. We see things come and go. Grandparents die. We don't understand eternity. And this is what it means. Listen to me, my friends. If you reject an eternal God, there is an eternal consequence. See, we don't get that. We, 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 we think to ourselves, well, you know, we'll get out in 20 years or we'll go back up for probation and there will be another chance that is not the God of the Bible. He is eternal. And when He made you, He made you then to live forever as well. So you don't go back in time, but whenever you start time, He meant for you then to live forever. And so now if you reject Him, that is the consequence. So today, I plead with you, don't focus on anything else but your own soul today. Get the arguments out of your mind. Deal with them later. God will help you understand. But today, secure your salvation. And don't come to Him just because you need fire insurance. And like it's a flu shot. I got that. I know I'm not going to heaven. I mean, I know I'm not going to hell. Why? Because I got saved. When did you get saved? 20 years ago. Do you live saved from sin, drugs, alcohol, perversion, anger? No, I don't live saved from any of that. But I'm saved from hell. No, if you're saved, live saved. If you're saved, live saved. You're safe from sin. You're safe from rebellion against your parents, young people. You're safe from anger and addictions, moms and dads. You're saved from greed. Live a life unto God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we ask you right now, as our prayer workers come, that as I begin to pray right now for that one person or for that many people, whoever today is not ready, Lord, to meet you, who doesn't have assurance of their salvation, I pray today becomes their day of salvation.